as they are heading to the back. You can turn with me again this week to James. We are back in our series in James, Faith in Gear. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. We spent a welcome detour last week, jumping into a text in 1 Corinthians where we celebrated and considered the resurrection, both its truth and its meaning. And now this morning we're back in James. So we're going to look this morning at chapter 3. If you look and you open your Bibles there, you see the end is in sight. We're, we're past the midpoint. And so we're working our way towards the end of the letter. With that said, we're going to look at verses 13 to 18 this morning. So if you turn there, if you don't have a Bible with you, it should be on the screen as well. You can read with me. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of his wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, You have given us Your words. Your words define what is wise. And so we ask now that in the power of Your Spirit, You would open Your words to us that we might see and hear and perceive wisdom from above. We need wisdom from above. And so, Lord, we ask You would open Your Word to us. And so we ask that in Your Spirit, You would open our hearts to receive and to be changed and transformed by Your Word. We want to be wise. We want to live in a way that is pleasing to You. We want to live in a way that reflects Your truth and Your priorities. We want to live in a way that is beautiful. We want to live in light of Your Gospel. So show us wisdom this morning, Father. The God of all wisdom. The God of all truth. We pray this in Your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't know that many of you have read it, but I'm confident you've heard of it. I don't know what to do for if you haven't heard of it. But the book is called The City of God by Augustine. And The City of God is one of the classics of all literature. Typical of Augustine, when the guy puts his pen to paper, history is made. He writes the confessions of St. Augustine, and there's a new genre created. A genre in which all of a sudden we have the first autobiography, right? Well, again, here is Augustine. And this guy lived in one of those periods where history was just happening. He wrote this book, The City of God, for a very specific reason. The entire world around him was thrown into chaos. In 410 A.D., Rome was sacked. The unthinkable happened. So the great empire, what they called the eternal city, Rome, this, this beacon of civilization and hope to the entire known world, 
was conquered. The Visigoths, these pagan tribes, these vandals came and they sacked the eternal holy city. And so you can imagine the entire nation, the entire empire of Rome is thrown into chaos and fear and uncertainty. Imagine if the Canadians came down and descended on Washington, D.C. and actually won the battle, right? That would really shake us Americans to our core. Well, that's what was happening. And in the midst of that, there became an argument that the reason this... You know, the question is, kind of, how could this happen? Here's the eternal city. Rome is never supposed to fall. It's supposed to reign and rule forever, which is really just ignorant of history, right? Whether you're talking about the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Persians, every empire rises and falls. Romans arrogantly didn't think there's wood. And so they're trying to figure out why did it happen? And there's this idea, the reason this happened is because Rome had become Christian. Prior to this, Constantine the emperor had been converted, and so Rome officially had left the pagan gods behind. And so now this argument was coming up. The reason that Rome fell was because they weren't worshiping the old gods. As silly as that sounds. And so Augustine wrote the city of God to counter that argument and to put it plainly to just demolish that argument and in the city of god he puts forward this incredible story of two cities in the second half of the book talking about the city of man the city that is is unspiritual and driven towards destruction and the city of god a city that has an eternal hope and will remain established forever and so he contrasts these two cities as he writes and he gives hope to the empire by saying You shouldn't be putting your trust in the eternal city, Rome. That's the city of man. You should be putting your trust, your faith, the foundation of your life in the real eternal city, the city of God. And he contrasts the two. And his point is, the city of God shows us and proves, no matter what happens, all of history is moving towards God's purposes. Everything that happens, even the unexpected in the world, even when the city of Rome falls, God is at work to bring about His conclusion to His story. Well, as you can see, there are some helpful correlations with our modern world. So, if you feel like you're up for it, I would encourage you to pick up City of God and read it. It's a challenging read, but it's a good read. The reason I bring it up is because it's similar to some of the arguments James is making in today's text. James doesn't talk about two cities. There's no talk about metropolises, right? But he talks about two kinds of wisdom. He talks about the wisdom of man, wisdom from below, and the wisdom of God, wisdom from above. He's playing on a similar idea that Augustine picked up, that there are different philosophies by which you can live your life. And so in this text, James wants us to consider, similar to Augustine, What is the philosophy? What is the wisdom? What is the worldview by which I live my life? So those are the two questions. And to do that this morning, we're going to jump in. You look at verse 3.13. He asks this question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Is it the wisdom of man or the wisdom of God? And that's all we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at those two sources. The wisdom of man first, and then the wisdom of God. So first, the wisdom of man. Here's what James tells us. The key question, 3.13, Who is wise and understanding among you? In verse 14, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. 
This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now, the NIV actually puts wisdom in verse 14 in quotes. So you get this sense of it's a fake wisdom, it's a pseudo-wisdom. That there's a contrast going on between two types. But here's the thing. Even this pseudo-wisdom that James is talking about, he implies it has the appearance of being wise. Even though it's not real wisdom, even though it's the wisdom of man, it looks like it might have something to it. And that's important to remember. The wisdom of man doesn't seem stupid to the world. You need to realize that the famous philosophers, the intellectuals of the secular world, they aren't stupid individuals. They aren't unintelligent. You know, many of them are actually brilliant men and women. And many of them are winsome. And they're persuasive. Just by way of tangent, if you raise your children to think that the wisdom of the world is just silly and unsophisticated and these people are just mean-spirited and you send them off to college and then they encounter that these people actually are intelligent. And some of them are kind. You throw them into chaos. It's tempting and seductive because it appears true. So we don't do ourselves any favor by pretending the pseudo-wisdom of the world doesn't sound sweet to our ears. And that its proponents aren't good at peddling their philosophies, right? But I also don't want us to go so far as to make it seem like these are two kinds of legitimate wisdom. That's not what James is saying. One only appears wise. The other is true. He says the wisdom of man is false to the truth. And here we see a sobering reality. There are certain levels of stupidity that require high intelligence as a prerequisite. I think that's what James is saying. There are certain levels of stupidity, of foolishness, of pseudo-wisdom that require high intelligence as a prerequisite. Nietzsche wasn't a, a moron. He was brilliant. He was smarter than any person in this room. And he was a proponent and had given his life to utter falsehood. Intelligent people become convinced of utterly foolish ideas. And that should be sobering to anyone who thinks they're smart. Right? Romans one twenty one. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, claiming to be intelligent, claiming to be the sages of the age, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images bearing resemblance of mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. James echoes Paul's thoughts here. You see the nature of false wisdom by the character of the life lived. So Paul says, you want to see how you know that these brilliant men have become foolish in their thinking? They start worshiping created things. They start worshiping false gods. James similarly says, you want to discern who's wise and who's foolish? Look at how they live their life. Isn't that interesting? The answer to his question in verse 13, Who is wise among you? 
It's not, who has scored above 30 on the ACT, right? It's not, who can parse Greek verbs? Who has a PhD or an advanced degree? That's not the answer. The answer is seen in the conduct of our lives. And conversely, he actually says the world's wisdom is a body of foolishness. It's a life of perverted priorities and activities. Sometimes really intelligent people doing really foolish things. So in essence for James, you will know wisdom by her fruits. You'll know what is wise by how we live. So what are those fruits? That's what we're going to spend the rest of the time in this section looking at. What are the bad fruits of false wisdom? What are the marks of man's foolishness? Well, he says two things right off the bat that are joined together and are really the heart of these fruits. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And he says that bitter jealousy, you could even call it envy, some translations do, and selfish ambition, when they occur and when they're thrown into a community, lead to disorder. They lead to chaos. That's what he's saying. So for James, if someone is envious or they're driven by selfish desires and motives, you've either embraced the world's wisdom or you're living a lie. You would claim to believe God's wisdom, but you're not living according to it. So, let's look at these two, these two words. First, the word for jealousy is significant. It's actually the word that it's used, zealous, is where we get our word for zealous. They sound very similar, right? And so it can have a positive sense. It can mean a zeal, a holy passion. Jesus is described as having zeal at times, right? There are characters in the Old Testament who do glorious things because of their zeal for God. This is the same sort of word that is translated about God being jealous for His own glory. So it can be positive, but here it has a very negative sense. Here the meaning is about someone who's driven with a me-first desire. They want to possess things that aren't actually theirs to possess. And James says when this fruit exists in the life of a group of people, it's poison. In fact, it takes on bitterness, he says. And this envy, this bitterness, this jealousy is born in a heart that's driven by selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is this idea of a me-first, selfish attitude that is always working for personal gain. At the end of the day, the thing that matters most is me and mine getting further ahead. That's what selfish ambition is. My needs and my wants and my desires always come before the good of the community. I come before you. It's a striving. A striving for prestige and power and it uses other people as a means to get those things. It doesn't build up the body it treats the body like a mound of resources to be climbed and trampled and then later discarded. Thomas Watson, Puritan, said, Selfish ambition is the mother of all schisms. You want to know what creates divisiveness? Selfish ambition does. This is actually one of the few times in the New Testament this word is used. It's a rare word. We don't see this word all over the place in the Scripture. 
And so to find the meaning, sometimes when you've got a word like that that doesn't have a ton of usages, you have to look elsewhere. And it's actually a rare word even outside of Scripture. There are a few times this word is used even in all of Greek literature, but one of the places it's used most prominently is actually in Aristotle. Aristotle, the wise Greek man, isn't that ironic, uses this word and his use of it helps us to get our minds around what James is envisioning here. Aristotle would use this word, selfish ambition, to describe someone who was entrenched. They had a partisan fervor. They were sectarian. They were divisive. Specifically, he used this word to describe the greedy politicians of his own day. Isn't that an interesting way to think of this selfish ambition? You picture in your mind, and that shouldn't be real hard to do, right? The most corrupt, greedy politicians. And not all politicians are that way. There are God-glorifying, God-honoring politicians, but we all know of the gross ones. That is what this word represents. I remember going to the pastor's college and in orientation week, Gary Ricucci, one of the pastors there, gave us a series of things that we needed to be mindful of to find success in our ten months at the pastor's college. And you know, we're, we're all sitting there, you know, rapt attention, but it was interesting, even you know, a day into it, we'd already been looking around the room at the other 20 guys, right? And there's already sort of that thing going on in your heart where you're, you're sort of measuring yourself. Uh, you know, like, how, how do I compare to that guy? And you have a conversation, and so what did you do? Where do you come from? And it's not just interest, it's also measuring. Oh, that guy, he's from Georgia. I've I got to be cooler than him, right? Georgia? Well, Gary, I remember, <laughs> amen, yeah. Jerry, Gary said this, and it was so helpful. He said, in order to get the most out of our year, we needed to come together as a class and as a community. And for that to happen, we individually would have to put to death comparison and competition. It's <laughs> just like, and he knows. I mean, he had done this thing for 10 years at this point. He knew that as soon as we had all arrived, oh, we're shaking hands and meeting guys, but in our hearts, we're doing just that. We're comparing and competing. Oh, that guy's just got a bachelor's degree. I've got a master's degree. I'm better than him already. That guy's never taken Greek. I've taken Greek. I'm ahead of him. And he warned us and said, that has the potential to destroy what you can receive from all these men this year. What he was talking about was selfish ambition. Now, that doesn't mean ambition itself is evil. But rather, when ambition is unsanctified, when it's unwise, when it's untethered to the truth, as James would say, it becomes a deadly peril. And James is really perceptive here. The phantom wisdom of the world, it produces this toxic fruit of, of bitter envy and selfish ambition. And when that stuff gets loose in a group of people, whether it's a sports team or a house of Congress, or a church, it causes destruction. James says it actually causes disorder. That word disorder means there's a sense of chaos. And this chaos leads to all sorts of vile practices. I found a helpful quote from Stuart Scott. Not the Stuart Scott on ESPN and Sports Center for some of the guys who are wondering. This is the Stuart Scott who is working at CCEF. He wrote this, The world's smallest package is a man wrapped up in himself. That's helpful. And it's so true. 
James's point is that all of the disorder comes from that person, wrapped up in himself, from a person who's obsessed with pursuing his own glory. That's the heart of selfish ambition. Wanting me to look more glorious than you. It's a craving for recognition. When I do something, I want credit for it. And if I do it well, I better get some prestige. James says it's earthly. He then says it's unspiritual. And that word is just packed with meaning. It literally means from the heart, but not just from the neutral part of the heart. From the gross part of the heart. It's a word that describes the part of a person's heart where human emotions reign supreme. In fact, in some, in some places, Greek literature will use that word to compare the part of a man that is similar to a beast. That's where selfish ambition comes from. From that animal desire to kill or be killed. That gross survival of the fittest. That's what's happening. And that all makes sense when we consider, and here you see James's perceptiveness, the final source. The phantom wisdom, he says, this wisdom of man is demonic. It's no coincidence. The wisdom that comes from Satan, the one who wanted to steal God's glory, is marked by the selfish desire of men to hoard their own glory. And it produces exactly what Satan desires. When God creates, Genesis talks about God bringing harmony out of disorder. God bringing order, bringing beauty, bringing a right working system. Everything works and functions exactly as it's supposed to. All of creation singing in perfect harmony to God's glory. And then Satan comes with a goal to undo all that harmony. To sow disorder and discord and chaotic frenzy. Here's the point I think James is making. When that envious, selfish ambition is ruling the hearts of your community, you look like Satan's creation and not God's. That is the wisdom of man. That's what it looks like. Now let's turn positive. Look at the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is of a totally different quality. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning exploring this. In fact, James sets up the passage, as we've talked about, in one massive contrast. Wisdom of man, this earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom versus wisdom, he says, that comes from above. So, as we look at that, let's ask the question, what is wisdom? Remember, all the way back in chapter 1, this isn't the first time James has talked about this, right? This letter holds together. This originally would have been read in one sitting. So we'd be sitting there thinking, oh yeah, just like three minutes ago, I read the definition of wisdom. Well, in chapter 1, we see wisdom is shaped by James's Jewish background. He's drawing on this sense of the Old Testament for what wisdom looked like. It's not just obeying and believing. It's this idea that you live out your life in a certain way. 
that you live out your life in accordance with what God says is righteous. So, James asks the question, who is wise and understanding among you? Here's the irony. He's not looking for intelligence. He says the one who is wise is the one who lives by good conduct. One commentator said, the one who is wise, James is saying, lives beautifully. Isn't that an interesting way to think of it? The one who's wise has a beautiful lifestyle. Wisdom in the biblical sense isn't intelligence. It's not smarts. It's actually skill. It's skill in the art of something. Wisdom, specifically, is skill in the art of godly living. James is talking about something inherently practical. Are you wise? Well, do you have skill for living like God desires? Does that define you? But specifically here, he's asking us, do we possess the skill of godly living in the midst of community? And chapters 3 and 4 are all about a sense of what's happening in these communities. He wants them and us to think, are we living rightly with each other? Does it look like we have skill in godly living in the way that we walk about and live life together? That's the question. Is our church marked by the fruit of wisdom or the disorder of foolishness? Is your care group? Is your family? Those are the questions he wants us to ask. But at the end of the day, we return to the thoughts of that commentator. Wisdom James is painting for us is beautiful. When you see wisdom, true wisdom, wisdom from God, there is a beauty to it. At the heart of this beautiful lifestyle, James says, is humility. The ESV translates it, the meekness of wisdom. In other words, the hallmark, the hallmark of wisdom is humility. The great fruit that it produces is a spirit of meekness. Now, because we talked about it in the introduction. Listen to how Augustine talks about the beauty of humility. There is something in humility which, strangely enough, exalts the heart. It looks desirable. And something in pride which debases it. That is the prime fruit of wisdom. God's wisdom produces humility. And we see that because James says, What's the source of this wisdom? Where does it come from? Not earthly, not unspiritual, not demonic. It comes from above. The source requires us. It requires us to lay down credit. God is wise. He defines what is wise. Not us. What human wisdom prizes and promotes above everything else is man's reason. Man's intelligence. Man's brilliance. What divine wisdom prizes and promotes above all else is God's revelation. That God has revealed Himself. That God has shown us what is true. And that humbles us. Now, predictably, this humility is actually the antidote to the poison and toxicity of selfish ambition. There's a reason why James sets them beside each other. You want to know how to fight selfish ambition? You keep humility central. And when you keep humility central, it means you keep the gospel central. 
Remember Paul. And here's James writing to a community that's obviously having divisive stuff going on. And earlier we heard about the partiality that's going on. Some people are being favored. The rich, the wealthy, those who might appear wise, right? And it's tearing into the fabric of the community. Well, in another context, another letter, Paul writes to the church at Philippi. And this church as well, this church that he loves, that are like his closest co-laborers in the gospel. They're part of those Macedonians that send out this generous gift even in the midst of all their lack. Well, they've also got divisiveness. It's a helpful reminder. There's no impeccable churches in the New Testament. Even Philippi has its issues. And there's this infighting that's going on. And Paul, one of the only other times it's used in the New Testament, calls it selfish ambition. There's selfish ambition happening here. You know how you combat that, he says? This is how you put to death selfish ambition and conceit. You remember Jesus Christ. You remember that Christ, who even though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That He humbled Himself and became a man. And that once He became a man, He humbled Himself further and died. Even death on a cross. Here's what Paul's saying. Even death on a cross. Not just that the Son of God, the eternal Word, takes on flesh and dies. Even death on a cross. He shows us the soul of humility by taking on a shameful death to redeem us. Now, what's the power of that? How does that change us and put to death selfish ambition? Well, the parallels are really stunning between that text and this text in James. They're both talking about selfish ambition and they both talk about humility in relationship to it. Both the apostles see the power. The power of humility that shines brightly at the cross. So when there are tensions, when you get rivalries and, and infighting and squabbles, think of your house. you got spouses fighting or kids fighting or kids and parents fighting. When foolishness is reigning, going back to the Gospel is the solution. Because there we see the self-emptying of Christ for our sake. And that self, that humbling of Himself is what destroys the power of a me-first, self-seeking ambition. Here's why. Follow with me. This is really awesome stuff. And that's not because it's in the sermon, it's because it's in the text. Let's make that clear, right? This is wisdom from God. The Gospel produces humility because it reminds us that in Christ, we have all the approval and all the affirmation we could ever possibly need. That's what the Gospel says when God declares, you're my son. I'm declaring you my son because I see you looking like my son, Jesus. You don't get more affirmation and approval than Jesus gets from the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, says the King of Kings. And He says that about us in Christ. So, you think how many times we get caught up in seeking our own glory. Right? Because we lose sight of all the glory that is already ours in the Gospel. This is why the world's wisdom is so false. It has no sense of Christ's glory. It calls Christ's glory foolishness. Man still feels, every person in here, man, woman, child, all of them, we all feel in our hearts a pull towards glory. 
a desire towards glory. You want to see and experience glory. Our heart exalts when we see it. Without Christ, the only solution is to strive and claw and compete for our little corner of the finite market of human glory that's available out there. Only one team gets to win the Final Four and get all that glory. And they're clawing and fighting for it. Only one man or woman wins the election and gets the glory of being called Senator, right? Only one person gets the glory of being the valedictorian. Only one person gets the glory of the promotion. Without Christ, we claw and we fight. But believers don't have to resort to this. Because in Christ, because of His perfect obedience, think of it this way, because of His beautiful lifestyle, the way He mastered the art of godly living, all of that has been credited to us. Which means this, if you are in Christ, you don't have to worry about approval. You don't have to live your life constantly seeking affirmation. When God sees you, He doesn't see your filth. He doesn't see your envious heart. He doesn't see your lusts or your lies. If you are in Jesus, He sees you covered with Christ's righteousness. You could put it this way. He sees you literally dripping with the glory of the Son. What more glory do you need than the glory that the Father sees when He looks at Christ? And so when God looks at you who believe in Christ, He sees that and He blesses it and He approves it. The approval He gives to His Son, He extends to you. That's the only power that kills selfish ambition. It frees me from the need to seek and promote my own glory. It means I don't have to live my life pursuing the approval of others. I don't need to manipulate. I don't need to manage. I don't need to pull the strings of other people to make sure that they like me. I don't need to use other people to promote myself. The meekness of wisdom takes flight at the place of wisdom the cross. And this means we can live wisely as God would have us. It means we can live for glory. The glory of God in our relationships. Here's a helpful way of thinking of it. You don't have to live for approval anymore. You can live from approval. God in Christ approves of you. And that changes how you go about your pursuits. It changes a church. It changes a, a community. It changes a, a care group. You think of this. Here's some application. You don't have to fear confessing or even just bringing a problem and an issue that reveals all your weakness or all your ugliness into the midst of a care group. Because you're not living for the approval of those people. You're not living for their affirmation. In fact, you're dripping, even in that moment of confession, in the approval of the Father. It means, in the context of community, I don't have to envy someone else's spiritual gifts. 
I don't have to wish for that person's gifts or that person's talent or the credit that person has received. That's transforming to a body. It means you don't have to live for your own glory, you live for God. You don't have to crave recognition. Here's a helpful thing. You don't have to go to church to be a consumer. There's a lot of churches that are just soaked in the ethos of our age that's all about consumption. It's all about you do something to get something. You're taught to consume. You're taught to go into everything with a sense of what you're going to receive from it. You don't have to approach church and the body of Christ that way. God doesn't want us to approach church and the body of Christ that way. He doesn't want us coming with eyes to consume, with eyes looking for, what's this church going to do for me? What's that pastor going to do for me? What's that person going to do for me? If I do this, how many other things are they going to do for me? It comes with the mindset of Christ saying, I've come to serve. I've come to lay down my life. I've come to empty myself. That's the gift of the cross. You've reserved far more than you ever deserve in Christ at the cross. And so you don't have to come demanding. You come open-handed saying, please take. I want to sow what I have into this. Not expecting I'm going to get something back knowing I've already received more than I should have had in the first place. But it also doesn't mean, and this is helpful I think, it also doesn't mean that ambition vanishes. James isn't saying that ambition itself is inherently evil. He's talking about selfish ambition. What he's saying is the Gospel, wisdom from above, has the power to transform ambition. Verse 17 says, wisdom from above is pure. It's a sense that it's blameless. The wisdom of God creates and produces a purity of heart. In other words, the wisdom of God purifies desires. Ambition doesn't die, it gets a makeover. Better yet, ambition gets converted. The humble person, this this is important. The humble person isn't a limp-wristed sissy. That's not what he means by meek, okay? That's not what they're imagining. That's what the Greeks thought of it. The Greeks thought of meekness as just a pushover. Someone that's just, just... the wimp of all wimps, voiceless, right? That's not what it's imagining. It's not imagining someone who's not strong. It's not a woman who's just utterly silent. Never, never willing to say something she feels like God put on her heart. When Patty comes forward this morning, feeling like the Spirit put something on her heart, oh, that is, that is an awesome ambition. To see God glorified and His church built up in the moment of giving a prophetic word to the body. Well, if you've got some weird definition of humility, you might never do that. Oh, it's not humble if I go forward. That's not what's in view here. When desire for God's glory in Christ, when our desire for God's glory in Christ eclipses our desire for our own glory, when we start living for God's glory, Ambition gets transformed into something pure. God wants ambitious people. God wants ambitious churches. 
you think of the saints, these men we hold up, men and women who are just, they just tower over us for the things they achieved in the name of God. They were ambitious. We talk about William Carey because he had an ambition to bring Christ to the nations, right? To see Christ's glory held high. That was ambitious. We read about John Owen because he had an ambition to explain God's truth in volumes to people so that it would transform churches and lives and hearts. That it would help his nation to be guided by truth and right principles. Those are ambitious things. God wants us to be ambitious. He wants us to seek glory. So long as the glory that we hunger and crave for is God's glory. I love how Spurgeon puts this. Spurgeon always puts it the right way. The true soldier is an ambitious being. He pants for honor. He seeks for glory. On the field of strife, he gathers his laurels. What a good phrase. And amidst a thousand dangers, he reaps renown. The Christian is fired by higher ambition than any earthly warrior ever knew. He sees a crown that can never fade. He loves a king who best of all is worthy to be served. He has a motive within him which moves him to the noblest deeds, a divine spirit impelling him to the most soul-sacrificing actions, a divine spirit impelling him towards ambition with its eyes set on God's glory. When wisdom produces this sort of God-glorifying ambition, James says that has a purifying effect. It changes the soul. It purifies. It makes it blameless. And here's what he says happens. Textually, he shows these are the things that flow from it. There's three things. He uses alliteration. People become peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. You're like, that's not alliteration. Well, it's alliteration in the Greek. Same letter with all three of those words. He's showing these things all flow from this sort of purity. And the sum of it is this mercy and good fruits. That purity of desire for God's glory produces men and women peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. The opposite of envious, selfish, and ambitious. Instead of disorder and chaos, there's harmony. In place of rivalries and partiality, factions and one-upmanship, people are gentler. better way maybe to put it would be they're considerate. They're willing to yield to others for the good of the body. He says we become open to reason. Literally, easily persuaded is how you could translate that word. Now, he's not saying you just become a total wimp in an argument. That guy, he's easily persuaded. He's easily easily overcome with an argument. He's a Christian. No. But rather, you die to the need to always be right on things that have little consequence. Ever been around somebody like that? They are just horrible to be around. They're annoying. Hannah could tell you about it. I used to be that way. (laughs) She wouldn't date me our freshman year of college, in part because of that. She was a wise woman. These first three things highlight the fruits, the hallmarks of a church of unity. I remember distinctly the first time I ever really got to experience in like my own setting, surround sound. I had a buddy in college who worked at Best Buy one summer. 
So he got this you know, incredible discount and being a really silly 19-year-old decided that all the money he earned that summer he should spend on this just ridiculous, tricked-out surround sound system. And so we moved into our apartment sophomore year and it's six guys and he sets up, Greg, it's almost like half the reason we invited him because we had this in, inkling, he might have surround sound. We should have him come live with us. If you're listening to this, Greg, that's not why we live with you. So he put up this system, and we're like, okay, we got to test this thing out. What, what, what do we have in the movie collection that can do justice? So we're looking through, and then we come upon Saving Private Ryan. Oh, yeah. And so we put Saving Private Ryan, and of course you go to the beach scene on Utah Beach, and we cranked that thing up. And it's just, I mean, bullets are flying. Like you're sitting on the couch, like almost ducking, and it's pinging, and there's explosions, there's motors. And we have this thing so loud. And these are like massive tower speakers that the room is like seriously vibrating. And there's like, you can see when we looked down in this courtyard, and there are people like literally opening their doors, like a hundred feet away, looking like, what is going on? <laughs> like, are we being attacked by terrorists? It was this awesome, amazing sound that just filled the room with battle and chaos and disorder. That's what happens in a room filled with man's wisdom. But if we had put in Mozart or Beethoven, a symphony, and turned the surround sound on, it would have been powerful and moving, and surrounded by it. You'd feel it the same way, all the way to your core. But there'd be harmony. It'd be beautiful. It'd be winsome. That's what James says are the fruit of God's wisdom. Final two things he tells us. This wisdom, the final two hallmarks, again, using alliteration, shows us that it produces a church not just of unity, but of unshakable faith. He says we will be impartial and sincere. Sincere is just James repeating the point that he said earlier in the letter. Those who practice pure religion are not double-minded. They're not constantly turned about and doubting. They're not hypocrites. What they believe affects the way that they live. The other word, impartial, is probably better translated unwavering. That's the sense that James is saying here. They are unwavering. That's what wisdom is. A wise person is unwavering in the truth. They're unshakable. They're fortified. They're not obnoxious. They're not arrogant in their orthodoxy. They don't rub their truth in your face. That's not what he's saying. That's not humble. But neither are they willing to keep silent when truth is assaulted or when falsehood is promoted. This goes back to the source of wisdom. Man's wisdom comes from within. And it comes from the demonic. It's earthly. And so it's inherently prone to shifting, to being uncertain. But the wisdom of God comes from above. It comes from the God who is unchanging, who does not turn. 
It comes from the God who founds His Word in His character. And so you know that that Word is true. The same way that it was true 2,000 years ago, it was true 200 years ago. And in the same way it was true then, it is true now. The same ways it defines wisdom. The same ways this Word describes beautiful living. It's true today. It's still beautiful today. No matter what the wisdom of the world says is beautiful living, this Word is wisdom and really says what is beautiful, what is wonderful, what is praiseworthy, what is good conduct. I'm going to close with a Chesterton quote and a promise. Chesterton, because he's the man, he's just infinitely quotable. and He captures us better than I can. A promise because we want to end on the foundation of the unshakable word. What we suffer from, Chesterton says today, is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert. Himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt. The divine reason. The new skeptic is so humble that he doubts if he can even learn. There is a real humility typical of our time, but it so happens that it's practically a more poisonous humility than the wildest prostrations of the ascetic. That's quite the sentence. The old humility made a man doubtful about his efforts, which might make him work harder. But the new humility makes a man doubtful about his aims, which makes him stop working altogether. The loss of ambition. This is great. We are on the road to producing a race of man too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. I don't know. Does three times three really equal nine? Maybe it's 12. True wisdom is unshakable. It's unwavering. It's sincere. It's humble. It creates peace. It drives out discord. It binds the body together in deference to each other and in a hard, striving pursuit of God's glory in Christ. And then a promise. Remember, James always sort of has Jesus and those words in his background, right? Matthew seven twenty four. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was speaking to them as one who had authority the authority of wisdom from above. Would you bow your heads?